Today on More Than a Test, we are honored to be joined by Dr. Claude Goldenberg. Dr. Claude Goldenberg is actually in retirement. He retired from Stanford a little bit ago, but you wouldn't know that because he seems to be everywhere all the time. He is one of the most important voices on science of reading, biliteracy, bilingual learners, multilingual learners, and the ways that we can all be doing more in our schools, understanding research better. And he is going to hold my feet to the fire on some of the great questions around the research that we talk about. So don't miss this conversation with Dr. Claude Goldenberg. Claude, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Laura. I'm delighted to be here with you. I have to tell you, so the first time I emailed you about this podcast, I emailed your Stanford email and got back a retirement notice. But if anybody has been following you, no one is going to believe that that's true. You are everywhere. So tell me, how are you retired and everywhere? What is happening in the science of reading that is just bringing your voice and your work right back to the forefront for everyone? Well, you know, I'm retired. I retired from Stanford. You know, I retired from like an official job where I have to do things, most of which I like, but some of which I don't necessarily. So right now I would define my retirement as I do what I like and when I like to do it. And I, I do things that I find interesting, engaging, and I meet people like you who make me want to just keep doing more of it. And um, I guess that's the only answer. I mean, I, I just, I, I told someone I was retiring from kind of official an official job, but I'm not retiring from life. Uh, I, I, I sort of... Uh, been thinking that, you know, my life kind of, one's life can be divide, divided into thirds. I mean, the first third is you're getting educated and not just learning to read, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that, but, you know, you're basically your education through like, like in my case, through PhD school, you know, however your formal education. And then there's, you go to work and you work, but you also continue your education. Uh, but you're you're working in a more or less structured sort of way. Even in the gig economy, you, that's the second third. And the third third, you're still learning, right? I mean, you never stop learning. But you're more free, if you're fortunate, as, as I have been, you're free to do things that you think will, will help, will contribute in some way that you weren't free to do in the first two phases because you were busy getting educated formally and then working formally and establishing, you know, family and the usual thing. And once those things are behind you, you can take the things that you've learned or you think you've learned or, um, I don't know, skills, maybe a little wisdom. If you're really lucky, you can kind of sprinkle some wisdom and just continue to contribute. And I don't know, I don't want to sound kind of weird or anything, but that's the kind of retirement that I, I think that I'm in. I hope. Yeah, but you're contributing a lot. I mean, you and I actually just spent time together in Laramie, Wyoming, because the state of Wyoming Department of Education flew you out there to, to talk to their teachers. And you have a lot to contribute around multilingual learners. What is it that when you're being flown somewhere, you know, I think right after Wyoming went to Florida, what are they hoping you're going to, what wisdom are they looking for you to impart? Because you have a lot of research out there. What is so valuable <laughs> right now coming from Claude Goldenberg? Well, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> why they would spend any money to fly me anywhere and put, in a, put me in a hotel or whatever. But I think what it is that, I mean, just sort of objectively speaking, I, you know, my, my career has been focused primarily on looking for ways to expand opportunities for English learners, what we call English learners, emergent bilinguals, 
English learners, multilingual learners, and so forth. Uh, and I've mostly concentrated on Spanish-speaking kids because I myself, uh, Spanish is my first language. I was born in Argentina. So when I decided to get into education, I've always been interested in in working with, uh, I mean, there's, I sort of come from a family tradition of, my, my dad was a physician and he was never interested in private practice. He always worked in community hospitals, uh, at, at universities, uh, working with, you know, what we used to call underprivileged populations, which is, you know, not, not the term of choice anymore, but people who have sort of limited opportunities um, and expanding those opportunities, you know, from his standpoint, you know, uh, medically speaking, my mom was not a teacher, but she um, she was among the first cohort of volunteers in the summer for Head Start back in the 60s. You know, she was a Head Start volunteer back when we thought that six weeks of Head Start for poor kids would kind of give them a Head Start and even the playing field. Right. How, what a charming, romantic notion that we're way past. But you get the idea. I mean, that's kind of the family environment that I was in. And so. When I decided to, when I went to college, I thought I'd go to law school, but I ended up becoming more interested in education. And since I speak Spanish, my parents were living in San Antonio, <clears throat> excuse me, I I thought I'd go back to San Antonio and, and teach in one of the communities on the west side of San Antonio, uh, known as Edgewood. So that's always been what my interest has been. And then in graduate school, well, actually, it's kind of an accident because I never thought of, I was going to be a reading teacher. I was interested in history and social studies, social science, but my first job was uh, in junior high in San Antonio was to teach uh, five periods of eighth grade remedial reading. And these were kids whose reading was so low. I mean, some of these kids were like reading at a pre-primer level, no lie. The highest readers were maybe at a fourth or fifth grade level. And these were kids whose reading was so poor, so problematic that they were below the threshold. There was a federal... Uh, intervention program at the time, but the kids couldn't be more than two years below grade level. So the principal said, well, we need something for these kids. Well, here's a new teacher. He thinks this is a, he thinks this is a good idea. Let's give them to him. So I had these five, year, five periods of remedial English uh, learner. Most of them were English learners, mostly Hispanic kids. So then I got interested in reading. You know, I took a couple of courses at UTSA and reading, and then went up to graduate school I got more into reading and reading just in general, you know, the reading process, how you learn. And so I've been sort of, how should I say, on the cusp between research and issues for English learners specifically and research and issues having to do with reading, reading development, reading acquisition, uh, all the reading wars, things that had been going on for, for so long. So I was sort of on the cusp of both of those. And and I think, you know, I'm fairly informed about the research in both areas. And a lot of the people who are involved in this field are either really staunch English learner. Most of them are advocates. People get involved, in, you know, from an advocacy standpoint. But they don't really understand the reading research very well. And then people who are in reading research, and, you know, they're usually advocates of, of a different sort for you know, high quality reading instruction, science of reading and so forth. You know, we can talk about that, but they're for high quality reading instruction. But there's very, there are very few people who I think kind of, kind of, shall we say, I don't know, bridge the gap or kind of can speak well, to both sides of the fence. Right. It's interesting you say that because in fact, on this podcast, we've had, you are our third guest from California and the other two were from advocacy groups. 
And their sentiment around science of reading, you, you brought it up, so let's go there, um, is there's, there's some concern that it's a little too focused on English reading and that it doesn't take into account. There isn't enough science of reading research around multilingual learners and literacy. How, what would you say to them? And again, they were coming from the perspective of advocates, not as reading experts. Right, exactly. Well, what I would say is that they're, I mean, just to put it bluntly, they're misinformed because while it is true that a lot of the research uh, in reading, and let's talk talk about literacy more generally. We talk about science of reading. If you want to use that phrase, we just talk about science of literacy because there's more to literacy than reading. I mean, as important as reading is, there's kind of two sides of that coin. The science of reading or literacy is, uh, a lot of it is with monolingual speakers. And a lot of those in the United States is with monolingual English speakers. But there's research around the world, not only with speakers of other languages, but also with second language speakers, kids who are learning to read as they're learning to understand and speak the language that they're learning to read. And it's true here in the States. We have research on English learners. Now, it's not as voluminous by any means as it is for English monolingual speakers. I mean, that, that is a true fact, but it is untrue. It is blatantly untrue that there's no research to draw on for, this, for the kind of questions that English learners and advocates and educators of English learners need to draw on to think of and develop uh, best practices for English learners in the domain of reading, writing, and literacy. So it's untrue. There's no research on second language learners. So let's 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 dig into the things that they were wondering about that they were kind of bringing up and, and are percolating for them. One of the questions was that science of reading is focusing so much on phonics and not enough on vocabulary and not enough on um, you know background knowledge, which we also know is important for our multilingual learners, and that it's it's overemphasizing phonics for uh, multilingual learners. What do you think? I, I think that's I think it's untrue. Uh, again, it's a it's a matter of relative amounts, right? There's, right. there's certainly more on the monolingual, and and, that, and that's sort of a another kind of gap. <laughs> you know, we talk about achievement gap. There's also a research gap. I mean, right. any objective look at it, if you sort of weigh the amount of research for monolingual English speakers on one side and for for emergent bilinguals on the other side, it, it's unbalanced. But there is very important research on certainly on foundational skills, which has a lot of important aspects to it we can talk about specifically, but also on vocabulary, also on, on discourse, on, on the relationship between oral language and written language. So, so there is research to draw on. I, I fear that the problem is, I don't, I don't know if it's a willful neglect or they really don't know it. They can't not know it exists. I mean, they've not read any of my stuff. If they think it doesn't exist, Laura, then you, I'll send you a couple articles that they can read and we can sort of redress this balance a bit because it, it's just not a fair representation of the research. It, it's in many domains, not just foundational skills. Okay. And we can so talk specifics if you want. Ask me some specific questions and I'll answer them. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. So, but I want to, I want to ask you a couple of the other things that they were bringing up, because I think this is an opportunity for us to, to, like you said, cross the fence, bridge the gap for people who, who have really good intentions, but I think sit with some fear. And I think, you know, we said reading wars, like good, well, 
deserved fear, I guess, is what I would say in that literacy has had, um, across the country has had issues. So, um, let's, okay. So the other thing they asked about, you know, the big thing that they, I think they alluded to is like, is there a difference in the research between a student, like we talked a lot about how this is like brain research, right? Like where this isn't just teacher and teaching and stuff like that. It's also like what we're seeing like neurologically, neurologically for kids. Um, and I, and I just, is there research saying that a child who is learning in more than one language has a, has a different, is their brain different than a kid who learns in just one language? So let me be very, very careful here. There are, there are a couple of distinctions I want to make. <clears throat> one is there are functional differences in, in the brain. Now, let, let me, full, full disclosure, I'm not a neuroscientist, okay? I, I don't, I think I might have told you, but I don't know the difference between my earlobe and my prefrontal lobe. Okay, so just <laughs> putting all my cars on the table. All right. What I know, assuming it's correct, and if it's not, blame the neuroscientists, <laughs> is what I've read in the part of the literature that I can understand. A lot of this research is really hard to understand. It's very technical. It requires reading pictures that look like could be in the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? I mean, you've seen some of these brain scans, or especially Stanislas de Haines. I mean, he has the best brain scans in the cosmos. Are you familiar with Stanislaus Dehaene? I'm not, but I'll look it up after this. Oh, you should. Absolutely, you should. Yeah, he's... he's but uh, give us the information. Tell us, tell us about what you know. So what happens is that there are functional differences between bilingual and English and monolingual brains because there are two languages going on, right? So like I'm bilingual, I have a brain, I have a bilingual brain, right? But it doesn't mean that there are structural differences. I mean, there are groups of neurons that fulfill certain functions, linguistically, cognitively, affectively. And the differences are when it comes to reading. See, that's the other thing. There, there, there could be some differences. There's a switching phenomenon that has been documented that makes that gives bilinguals certain cognitive advantages, metacognitive advantages, you know, that they're aware that what you're talking about and the name of what you're talking about are two different things, right? The, the name of the thing and the thing are not one and the same. And if you know two languages, you automatically, for a lot of words, know two different words. So you kind of un have this understanding that is metacognitive that most people don't know right away because they only know one language and they confound the thing with the name for the thing. So I can give you other examples of those sort of ad advantages of, of of being bilingual. Aside from the fact you can talk to more people and lots of advantages <laughs> being bilingual. I, I strongly in endorse it. Right. But from the standpoint of learning to read, there's no evidence whatsoever. Now, remember, this is a science, right? It's evolving. Someday, next week, next year, next decade... Someone could say, you know, there is this little node here that in bilinguals exists, and in order to learn to read, you gotta you gotta invoke that node. At the moment, nothing like that exists. And the kind of brain circuitry that's gotta be created in order to enable literacy to happen is exactly the same whether you're monolingual or bilingual. Exactly the same. There, there are like no differences. The the sound of the language needs to be bound. That's a technical term that's used in the neurolinguistic literature, the binding. The sound of the language has to be bound 
to the letters representing those sounds, and then the, that has got to be bound to the meaning, to the semantics. That is, in layman's terms that I can understand, the brain's circuitry that's got to be constructed doesn't exist at birth, right? The elements are there, you know, because we can hear, absent some developmental anomaly, obviously, but under normal circumstances, the, 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 the raw elements there, because we can hear things, we can distinguish sounds, we can see things, we can distinguish shapes, we understand the meanings of things. I mean, oral language is intuitively meaningful. You might not know all the words, you know, when you're zero, one, two, three, four, five, you have to learn vocabulary, but the sense that speech coming in, oral speech coming in is, in, is meaningful, is intuitively there. You don't have to build a circuitry to build that understanding. Not so for written language. Right. And okay. that's true whether you're monolingual or bilingual. The circuitry, that's, I think that's really well put. And I think it's, I love the way you've made these examples so concrete, right? This idea of, you know, being able to see something and also have two words for it. Like that description really worked for me. So I really appreciate that. And the circuitry worked for me as well. Okay. So I've called out the advocates and what they're fearing. I'm going to tell you something a researcher recently told me and a fear that they have, and I want you to respond to it. So she, a, a literacy researcher, someone we all, we all respect said to me, I'm afraid that we are going to do all this work on science of reading. And in five years, it's, it won't have moved the, it won't have moved the dial. We won't have the results we were hoping for. It's not going to be as big as we think it's going to be, despite knowing this is a good, this is a good solution. What do you think about that? The result, but what do you mean by results exactly? Like that in we're going to hope that instruction. Yeah. Or that kids are going to be reading more and better. And that, that we're going to have, you know, like, we're not going to be where we were with balanced literacy that we're not going to, in five years, we won't see the results we were hoping for. Well, First of all, I think I think that's a good caution. You know, I mean, I think caution and skepticism, which is really absent in a lot of the debate, because people are way too certain and way over promise. And I can give you some specific examples of that if you'd like. So that kind of caution is, I think, really, really important. And whether and so it's regardless of what happens, I think it's well placed, because in order for us to take Let's call instead of science of reading, let's call it TBK, the best knowledge, mm -hmm. right? The best knowledge about teaching literacy, how literacy is acquired okay. and how to best to facilitate. In order for us to implement the best knowledge about literacy instruction requires a lot of things. It's, it's a long chain. Oops, it's a long chain. Right. First of all, the knowledge has got to be solid. Then it's got to be translated into curricular materials. Right. And then it's got to be translated into uh, professional development, pre-service and in-service that teachers can use and, and implement their classroom. And then it's got to be translated into practical policies and programs in schools and in classrooms to facilitate implementation. Right. The key word here is implementation. You know, you, you want to begin with something that's solid. And by solid, I don't mean works 100% of the time. We don't know. We don't have anything that works 100% of the time. We don't have anything that works 95% of the time, right? And we'll get to that 95% figure because I think we talked about that if you want. Yeah, we did. But people way over promise. So that's one of the problems that we have. But a lot of things have to happen in order for the best knowledge to put put into practice and get the results as that, that we want. A lot of things have to happen. And some of those things are have, have to do with 
social psychology, with organizational psychology, with sociology, with all sorts of elements that are beyond just, is the knowledge good? Is the knowledge valid? A lot of things have to happen in order for those things to get put into place in a way that's effective and and meaningful and 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 does the job. So even if you have what you think is a really valid, you know, bundle of TBK, you know, the right. best knowledge, it's it's a long, tough slog to implement that in a way that's reliable, consistent, and true to the knowledge itself. And we're really a long ways from declaring victory of any sort. Yeah. Well, um, to your point, Steve Carnavale was one of our first guests and he uh, was a founder of the UCSF Dyslexia Center. And he said, you know, in business, when you want to make a change for like the technology we use or something, it takes 15 years. In schools, <laughs> it can be four times longer. Um, and so, but so I hear what you're saying. There's this chain that has to, all the pieces have to come together, right? And we talked about how hard some of the neuroscience is to understand even, right? And then making that something that can be translated to a a classroom practice with a kindergartner, for example. Right, right. There's a, there's a lot of pieces there. So what do you think about places like the state of Ohio? The governor, you know, got both celebration and some pushback because he outlawed anything but science of reading. He was like, I don't have time to wait. We got to do this. Um, what do you think about that? Well, my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, what, what he outlawed was balanced literacy. Yes. Yes, that's the, you're right. You're right. I'm saying that he was pushing towards science. Of, and I think that is the direction he's going. But you're right. He outlawed balanced literacy. Right. So we can talk about whether outlawing balance of literacy is a good idea. And that's as I don't I don't want to get all pointy head and academic here. But but it's another matter to say, well, we don't do anything except science of reading. Now, they may seem like the same thing, but but they're slightly different. Um, the big the big question is, do you want policymakers to like outlaw? some things. And, you know, it's, it's a tough question because I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic in the sense that balanced literacy has by and large done a great disservice to a lot of kids. Uh, at the same time, you have to recognize that some kids and some teachers feel like they've used, they've, they've used it to good effect. Some teachers, in fact, you know, I know some people who are now very strong science of reading advocates and they learn to read in a balanced literacy classroom, so which is really part of the challenge because learning to read and the conditions that promote learning to read, there's a huge range, an enormous range. And there are lots of kids, as you well know, who, you know, as long as you don't stick them in a closet and turn off the lights, they'll learn to read. <laughs> You know, and even if you do, somehow they'll figure out a way to turn Somehow the they'll figure it out. Darn right. those kids, right? They right. just confound our science, you know? <laughs> it's just terrible. <laughs> so so that's part of the problem. And there are there are people in classrooms and situations where it seems to work just fine. But the pro you know, I think that if we had sort of a, sort of a teaching force, you know, where, where the, the, the knowledge that we have now, the best knowledge that we have now, has been duly distributed, uh, constructed, understood, able to be implemented, then I think, I think, I mean, this is just hypothetical, I think there'd be less concern about outlawing things. But as but as long as there are people who say, well, there are two ways to approach teaching reading, balanced literacy and science of reading, which is just so simplistic, you know, it's so superficial and so damaging in its 
sort of shutting down any kind of thinking and reasoning and, and analysis. As long as you have people who say, well, this is the landscape, balanced literacy or science of reading, then the temptation to say, okay, don't do balance of reading. Ba sorry, balance of reading. That's what I'm doing, balance of literacy. So you got to go do back balance to balance literacy. Yeah, that's right. TBK, right? Yeah, no, yeah. I get so, it. So that's that's really the the problem. And, and I know you got a tremendous amount of pushback. I mean, I've done some work in Ohio with some of the folks there right. trying to do PD. And, and you know, it was kind of a, it, it was a stormy thing to do. Uh, if I were advising him, um, I think I would I would try to encourage him to take a, a more thoughtful tack. You know, I mean, try to frame the debate. I, I mean, I sound like such an academic. It's almost embarrassing because in the policy world, you know, you got so many, you know, governors, you know, they got a lot of stuff on their plates. Right. Right. And they can't spend too much time nuancing and massaging the message. Well, someone's got to. Right. And And if they don't have time to do it, then we're going to be locked into these sort of dualistic, dichotomous, you know, choose your term battles between balanced literacy. I mean, it used to be whole word and phonics. Then it was right. whole language and phonics. Now it's balanced literacy and science of reading. This sort right. of dualism and dichotomous thinking is just, I think it's just a killer. And we've got to figure out a way to kind of get past that rhetorically, as well as, you know, cognitively and professionally and and, con and substantively. Yeah. And I think to your point about, you know, giving him a little bit of grace, right? I think I read in an article recently that balanced literacy curriculum is still the number one curriculum in schools in the U.S., despite what we know from science of reading and despite yeah. the damage that we know. So I think I think I can hear what you're saying about, you know, inaction might have been worse in this situation. And and there's some there's some good thought here. Let me um, I want to go back to something you said, something you, you promised to tell us an exact uh, like a really clear example of over promising when I asked about, you know, in five years, are we going to be looking back and, and saying we didn't get what we wanted. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, there's there's this famous statistic that's been bouncing around for the past, I don't know, few I became aware of it a few years ago, that um people in the science of reading uh camp, speaking superficially, um, like to proclaim that that we know how to teach ninety five percent of the kids uh, that we could get 95% of kids on grade level in reading if we just used TBK, SOR, you know, choose whatever your, you choose your poison, yeah. yeah, whatever you want to call it. And, and it turns out that that, that is untrue. Uh, and there's a part of it that's true, but it's, but it's a very limited part. Um, and the part that's true is the part that says, if we were to use the best knowledge we have on you know teaching foundational skills, which is where we have the most knowledge. I mean, we really have very solid knowledge about teaching foundational skills. We call it phonics and decoding, which is yes. kind of superficial because there's more to it. You know, right. there's letters and sounds, there's phonemic awareness. You know, there's there's understanding that that speech comes first, and you got to help kids understand how the speech part and the print part map onto each other, right? But that, that's right. what foundational literacy skills are, right? right? Because we're we're speech making and receiving creatures, but we're not print making and print receiving creatures. We've got to map those two systems on to each other. That's what foundational skills are about. And that's where we have the most knowledge, information, effect, yeah. information right? So what happens is that it's, I think there's very good evidence that if we were to use what we know in terms of foundational skills, we could get about 95%, could be 90, could be 93, you know, it's impossibly 
Precise. More than our reading now, for sure. <laughs> for, for sure, more than the reading now. We get 95% of the kids out of the bottom quartile okay. by the end of second grade, right? In terms of basic word recognition skills. Okay. Right? 95. Now, if we were to do that, that would be a huge step forward, but but not the whole ball game. And 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 I can say this with, with a great deal of certainty because this 95% figure comes from an article written by Joe Torgerson like 20 years ago, where looking at about a half dozen studies, some of which he was involved in, some he wasn't, but he looked at these studies that use really good, solid foundational skills instruction, you know, tier one in the classroom for kids. And then for those kids who are having difficulty getting traction, small group interventions, you know, tier two, if you're you know, right. the MTSS, multi-tiered Process, systems yeah. of support framework. So you use science of reading. And this was like 20 years ago. For Back then it was scientifically based reading research, SBRR. <laughs> We've now made great progress, and we call it SOR, <laughs> science of reading. Old wine, new bottles. I'll try to stop keep my cynicism in, in check. But that's what happens. We change the labels and we think we've discovered Education you know, loves something. a good acronym. <laughs> oh, good Lord. Yeah, that in the military. I think they could run a race <laughs> in that department. So what he found, and it's a little bit nuanced here, it, what he found was that the kids who were needing that intervention compared to kids in a kind of a business as usual, I don't know if it was balanced literacy or what, but it was just some kind of random whatever was going on in the classroom. Uh, a, a substantial number of those kids, you know, they got traction in those foundational skills. And by the end of second grade, they were above the 30th percentile, which is like low average in basic reading skills. Now, what Torgerson now, these are relatively small studies. I mean, if you put them all together, there were maybe, I don't know, several hundred kids. And what he did was he sort of extrapolated to a population basis because the number of kids, if you start off with the kids in the in the pool that were being taught to read, by the end of second grade, as a group, 95% of those kids, and it varied somewhat, 90, 98, some were higher, some were lower, about 95% of the kids were at above the 30th percentile. In other words, out of the bottom quartile. So the inference here, a, a really logical inference, was on a extrapolated on a population basis. We have the, the knowledge, the technology, the ability to get kids. But Torgerson also said in this study that that is not enough. Right. Because word recognition skills, as important as they are, they are. is not the whole ball game, shoot and match, in Wyoming, maybe you like shoot and match metaphors. In Southern <laughs> right. California, you know, I'm into ball game metaphors. Right. And he said, unless you can really demonstrate that third grade and up, when comprehension really kicks in, you still got some more work to do. And you'll have more work to do even after you do that. But he was very clear that this is a modest goal. Important, but modest in the in the big scheme of things. And so when people say, you know, we can teach 95% of the kids to be on grade level, that's very, very misleading. 
I, I really love the way you've kind of broken down this that I think a lot of people are, I know I've heard it multiple times are citing and, and saying, and, and kind of and bringing this research to life and really, really understanding like what was, I can picture the classroom and everything. It's really helpful for me. It kind of reminds me of something that Carrie Curdo said, she's from the reading league. Um, and she said, you know, one of the biggest problems we're having is with the best intentions, people are doing what she's calling a phonics band-aid. They're like slapping some phonics on it for everybody and, and not, and, and calling it science of reading. Um, and, and I'm just curious, like, what's your reaction to that? And if you, if a, if a teacher, we have lots of teachers who listen, if a teacher is listening and thinking, I think I'm doing a phonics bandaid, or I think our school, our district is doing that. Like what, what should they look for? What kind of resources are next? Like how, how can we help them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, and, and I think Carrie is right. I mean, there's this bandaid and I mean, anyway, n not to call out individuals, but I thought, I think we saw an excellent example of that with Lucy Calkins. When she finally, I don't know what in the heavens opened up and provided her with some light on the, on the importance of foundational skills, but somehow that happened. She says, okay, we're going to develop a program in phonics. Now, I personally haven't seen it, so uh, I think someone sent me some of their some of the pages, um, but a lot depends on on how it's implemented, and if it's uh, if it's implemented in a way that is kind of like a separate component and not well integrated into the, see, I think you have, I'm going to jump ahead because I know you're going to ask me about my favorite book. <laughs> in, the, in in this domain that we're talking about, I've got a favorite book and another, I don't know how much leeway you're going to give me and how many you books. You can have I can more have. than one favorite book. Claude. Oh, I love you. I love you. <laughs> so the most important book, in, I think in the reading domain is stages of reading development by Gene Shaw which I read towards the end of my graduate school, my PhD school career. And it was like, like a bolt of lightning because in this book, she lays out that, that reading is different things at different times in the developmental process of an individual becoming literate. You know, it's not a, I mean, teachers talk about the light goes on or the coin drops when kids kind of get the basic idea decoding. of decoding, right? right? I mean, that, that's huge. That's important. It's it's a very important step, but it's not the whole shooting match or ball game because full literacy certainly requires that, but it requires a bunch of other things. You know, you're familiar, of course, with Scarsborough's rope. All those elements have to be integrated with with fluency and automaticity and, and strategic and, and so forth. But Gene Shaw laid out the developmental stages. Now, these are not like maturational stages. You know, people hear of developmental stages and they say, oh, you're a maturationist. No, 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 no. Lots of environmental input, usually in the form of instruction, but not only. Lots of environmental input is necessary to go from one stage to the next. And reading is different things depending on the, the stage of development. So in what she called stage zero, which is unfortunate because emergent reading people find that offensive. Okay, <laughs> duly noted. But the pre-reading stage, reading really is all about language and meaning and communication and looking at books and looking at pictures, very little having to do directly with foundational skills, foundational literacy skills as we think about them. But that sets an important foundation as well, because you see what's going on with books and, and kids, as you know, as everybody knows, kids who come from homes where there's a lot of literacy going on. Uh, Jim Cummins calls it literacy socialization, which I think is a terrific concept. Well, that's going on. That's going to really provide 
another kind of foundation in addition to the sound symbol binding foundation. But then when it comes time to learn to read, then those sound symbol relationships are really key. That's got to move to the front of the agenda. And you've got to really focus on those things because without those, literacy is not possible. And But you've got at the same time, while you're doing that, you've got to also be doing things like read-alouds and talking and questioning and doing lessons or activities that build content knowledge. If you're lucky enough to go to a school where there are still field trips, do field trips, right? Those you know experience, yeah, go, go. Well, I was just going to say, you're going to love some of the episodes we just recorded with superintendents who have made like experiences for urban kids, like a huge part of their initiative because they're like, they have to experience things. It can't just be sit and get and like Absolutely. life is about being enriched and seeing and trying and, and being out there. So Absolutely. And, and that's part of the developmental process. A lot of things come together. What I mean, I think Scarzo's Rope is, was a brilliant conceptualization, but what's missing there is some kind of developmental framework right? that says what, because different things are prioritized at different times. Exactly. Right? Language, meaning, communication, you know, the whole socialization thing, stage zero. Stage one, letters and sounds are really important. You got to get that binding down of letters, sounds, meaning. I mean, those have got to be, you know, and then Linnea Airy has furthermore refined that beginning stage. You know, the pre-logographic, pre-alphabetic, or kind of like sub-stages, which are enormously helpful and have expanded, uh, you know, Shaw's stage. And then in stage two, you have fluency and consolidation where it becomes automatic, where, and, and that part of automaticity is tremendously important, but it has to begin early on. You got to be automatic in recognizing letters and associating them with, with sounds, right? You can't wait to teach fluency or focus on fluency once kids can read, kids can read words. It's got to start at the beginning. So this whole developmental process and then there's this notion of, you know, learning to read and reading to learn. Now, that's an old saw. It gets much maligned because people think, well, it's too simplistic. Well, it's true. It is too simplistic. But there's some truth to this too simplistic thing. Knowing because when you, things That's fit. right. You can learn stuff before you learn to read, but you've got to be hearing it, right? You can learn through the oral channel as you're learning to read well enough that you can start learning things. You have to read, be able to read at a certain level before you can learn things by reading. And I think anyone who has ever taught a child to read has like sat with a kindergartner or a four-year-old, like has seen exactly what you're talking about. Like there are moments where they're, they need the phonics, they're hungry for it and, they, and they're ready for it. And then, and then they move, right? And you have to kind of like move with them because they, all of a sudden they start, it's not one letter, it's blending. It's like, and, and you have to kind of give them the pieces and go with them and, and, yes. as opposed to, I, I, I haven't read that actual book about literacy stages, but I'm going to. It sounds, it sounds like something I would love to learn more about. So thank you for that. So Laura, just to tell you, in some ways, it may seem a little dated, right? Because the, ver the vernacular and the vocabulary and the terminology, now, this was written like in the mid 80s, okay. right? And we are... It, it's, I think it's going to sound a little old-fashioned, but I think it, the fundamental conceptualization of reading is different things at different stages, and teachers have got to, and parents have got to focus on things that are particularly timely at different times of the reading development process. So back to your question, how do you avoid kind of a phonics band-aid? 
you avoid a phonics band-aid by people understanding this developmental process and where phonics fits into it, where foundational skills fit into it. And we really don't have program. Well, we have some programs that are better than others. I don't know. Most people like to trash reading programs. I know a few of them. I don't think anyone does a, a great job. I know people are working on that. But teacher knowledge, in order to avoid the Band-Aid, I don't think there's anything better than teachers really understanding the developmental literacy process and how that proceeds and what needs to happen and how those things get integrated. And when you've got to sit back and focus on this and when kids, there's this other concept called the, the self-teaching hypothesis, right? That David Sharon in Israel and uh, Seiden, uh, Mark Seidenberg, who talk about statistical learning. There's a point at which learning to read kids can start teaching themselves, like when the coin drops, the light goes off, right? And you don't want to spend a lot of time over teaching when you would just want to give them space to kind of figure out those words and respond to their questions. It's a, it's a delicate dance. You know, it's a subtle, nuanced progression. And that's what I would wish, if one thing for teachers to understand, it's, it's that whole big picture and the nuances that are woven into it. That's that's really lovely, and I love the way you put that. Okay, I'm going to take advantage of this of this conversation because there's a debate happening at my company, and I'm going to give you like a really vague picture of something that we're talking about, and maybe you'll be able to help us. So we have this report that shows skills across every grade level. So you can look at Laura Glab, and it'll show you a little box for every literacy skill, kindergarten through sixth grade. And they change colors based on how well I'm doing. Like when, when I was reading out loud, how well did I do on like the short I sound? If I had like 400 times that I've seen the short I sound or whatever. So the debate we're having, we just recently um, added sixth grade. And if you look at sixth grade standards, they have vocabulary standards, comprehension standards, background knowledge standards, but there are no decoding standards for sixth grade. And so in this report, you can see all the other decoding standards in other grades. But our question was like, do we develop our own sixth grade decoding standards knowing that we that there are kids who are struggling with with being able to read in sixth grade and that we could use like some of the stuff coming from vocabulary like prefixes and suffixes and morphemes and things like that or do we kind of stay where the standards have already been which is without without decoding and, and phonics um and, and spelling patterns as part of the sixth grade standards so i'm curious what, what do you think do, with the very limited knowledge you have about this well certainly you don't want to take for granted uh, decoding phonics skills. Um, a lot of kids have, have taught, I mean, I'm faced with this question a lot when you're thinking about reading throughout the grades and everyone accepts more or less that decoding standards and teaching and foundational skills. But the question I think you're asking, which I've, I've, I've actually had to deal with some time ago was what's, how do you think about foundational skills for sixth graders? How do you how do you think about that? And and I think the way to think about it is they need to have those foundational skills. And if a kid is getting is doing okay in reading, if their comprehension is good, you know whatever okay means, right? The 50th percentile, you know, choose your criterion, but they're reading, they're reading with comprehension. Okay. I mean, they're doing the reading. I mean, I, I wouldn't bother to give them a phonics test or anything. But if a kid is having trouble, then you need to figure out what's going on. And one of the one of the candidates for going on is there's some decoding skills they don't have. That's one problem. The other problem is they may not be automatic. They may not know them like that. You know, one of the key concepts that has emerged in the past few years 
is the, is the title of a book by Mark Seidenberg, Language at the Speed of Sight. Think about it. Language at the Speed of Sight. We think about language as oral, and generally, as I'm talking, as you're talking, as you're talking, you may be talking fast and I ask you to slow down, but by and large, at a normal rate, you know, people talk at 100 words a minute. Let's just say right. something, 1,500 <laughs> words a minute. You can understand again. New York. <laughs> <laughs> there are always those exceptions, Laura. <laughs> you, just, you made the question harder. Thank you very much. Okay, but yeah, sorry. absent some kind of anomaly, you know, you hear it, you understand it, and you, and you can talk, you know. But language is not like that. It takes a while to really get to the point where language is comprehensible at the speed of sight. You see it, you read it. That's the whole notion of sight words that Linnea Airy has introduced. So it used to be sight words are these de undecodable words that you sort of learn as a big blob because you can't decode them, right? But but she's introduced another concept of sight words, and sight words are words that you 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 hear the sounds of the word, you see the written representation of the word, you connect it with the meaning of the word. That's called orthographic mapping. And once you see and put those three things together a few times the word becomes a sight word, you no longer have to decode it. It's a sight word, right? And building an ever greater bank of sight words is the way you make progress in reading. And if you're having to, you may, have, you may know all the decoding rules in the world, but if you've got to laboriously sound out all but the most simple words, stop, run, particularly in sixth grade, I mean, starting in third and fourth grade, you start getting hard words. Right. And if you've got to decode lots of words, I don't know what the threshold is. I'm, so, I'm sure someone's figured it out. But if you've got to spend time decoding a lot of words, automaticity is compromised. Fluency goes out the door and comprehension is just completely fractured. So foundational skills include not just all the decoding and phonics rules, but also applying them automatically. automatically. Language at the speed of sight. Um, I love how many different researchers, articles, books you mention in like a short amount of time. Like every time I'm with you, I like walk away with a stack of things to read and it, and it is always helpful. Thank you so much. So I well, Laura, can I just say something? Can I just tell you a cliche, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, right? That's such a cliche, you know, right. you know, I'm not Isaac Newton, <laughs> but, but there are a lot of people who've done really fundamental work. And one of my frustrations with a lot of our colleagues some of the EL world, but not necessarily, is they don't take advantage of, they, they, don't, they don't join me standing on those shoulders. There's a lot of knowledge there that just sometimes gets dismissed or ignored or denied it even exists, you know? So, yeah, okay. Well, so let me, well, there's a reason. I think you're, you're almost connecting to where I was going, which is, so you you, every time I'm with you, it's like I get a stack and I love it and you have all of this information, but you're also traveling. I mean, we, in, in this conversation, we mentioned Wyoming, Ohio, Cal, uh, California, Florida, of, to talk to teachers, you're talking to districts, you're talking to organizations. And so my first question is, when you talk to them and knowing everything that you know, and that none of us know as much as you know, it feels like at least, <laughs> like what gives you hope for us in that we're going to be able to translate all of this amazing work and, and use it and make it and make it work for kids? What gives me hope? I ask myself that often and not just on podcasts. I've got to tell you, uh, in all honesty, I sort of have mixed feelings. I mean, I think there's a lot of reason for hope. Um, 
you know, one of the reasons for hope is, I don't know if you know, but I, I participated um, last year. I, I kind of helped run and organize a, a convening in California looking for common ground. Um, California is one of the, I mean, the reading war is royal throughout the country. Calif in California, it's particularly, shall we say, vibrant <laughs> because they're like many sides. I mean, the EL population here is huge and EL advocates are extremely vocal and, and influential and, 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 and influential. Um, and there's a lot of sides to it. And we managed to sort of do a, it's almost about seven, eight month convening. Well, we, well, we found some common ground in, 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 in key areas um, in, for emergent bilinguals, for example, you know, the importance of bilingual education and knowing two languages, not just for English learners, but for all, all kids. I mean, we all, there's some value in bilingualism, period. Um, but also for teaching foundational skills, the importance of systematic, explicit instruction in foundational skills, um, and also the importance of um, uh, early screening for potential reading difficulties. Um, I'm not talking about dyslexia necessarily. I mean, dyslexia kind of gets kind of gets mixed in there. You know, you can't screen for dyslexia in kindergarten. I mean, that, that's just one of the many myths that, that are out there, piece of misinformation. You can screen for potential reading difficulties, which may turn into dyslexia, but we could certainly either avoid that or greatly minimize the impact of some, say, phonological difficulties that kids have if we screen early. So we're able to get some common ground. There's still lots of issues. But but it took, I mean, it took a lot of effort. I mean, there were about, I don't know, 15, 16 of us. We had some interviews. I mean, it was a seven or eight month process and it was it was work. And finding these this kind of common ground, which I know exists. I mean, there's a lot of common ground. There, there's some legitimate disputes for sure. That's the nature of science, you know? So it's possible, but it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and people have got to have some degree of commitment to doing that. And I don't find that that's as universal as I would like. If it were more universal, I'd be much more optimistic, but it's not. And that's the thing that make, that holds my optimism in check. It's so interesting because the next question I was going to ask you is, knowing what you know and seeing what you've seen, what's your warning for us? But I feel like you just answered that and that, you know, we have to have this commitment and we have to find common ground and that both of those things seem to be way too hard and difficult to find. Is there something else you'd add to that warning? Well, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a cliche, but, and you know, people can take this in different ways, but really it's not... A, you know, all of us have 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 agendas. You know, some are blatantly economic. You know, you got a program that you want people to buy. All right, that's out there. Um, some of them are intellectual. Uh, some of them are emotional. Um, you know, for teachers, um, you know, Margaret Goldberg, who I wrote an article with um, a couple of years ago in Reading Teacher, um, really made it clear to me uh, how it was just so emotion. It's emotionally wrenching for teachers to hear someone tell them, you know what, you've been doing it wrong all this time, which is not a huge leap from that to saying, I've been screwing up kids. I've been not teaching them. So they don't have any 
skin in the game other than doing a good job. I mean, that's why most people go into teaching. They like kids. They they want to do a good job. No one, you know, goes to screw up kids and mess things up. So when you find out that, wow, you were literally not informed well, you feel guilty, you feel, but then you say, well, why wasn't I taught? Why was in teacher prep school? They didn't teach me the right thing. So there are a lot of emotions, investments, intellectual, financial, that get all caught up in this. But I think we just have to think of, and this is the cliche I was promising you, we have to think of, it's, it's, it's for the students. It's, it's for the children. You know, my emotional investment, I don't care. You know? I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a story. Um, I, I was talking to a principal in Kentucky uh, who was the principal of the school for like the last five or six years. She taught there for 20 years before that. Her father was the principal of the school before that. And she's like super dedicated. Her teachers are doing like book groups on SOR. They're doing all this stuff. They go to all the conferences. And I was like, like, you are so committed to this. Like, why? And she cried. She said, because I know I did it wrong. Like, I know what I was doing. I was asking kids, like, look around the word, you know? And yeah, yeah. and she was like, I have to pay, you know? And and that's the good end of the guilt, right? Like, she took the yes. guilt and, and has just done something with it, to your point, with commitment. The other side of blame, and it's very easy to go down those roads, and teachers do work very hard for very little appreciation. And, and I think that it makes a lot of sense that there's an emotional burden that I don't think people talk about enough, so I appreciate you bringing it here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think... You know, if we need to think, I mean, what's the best knowledge we have and what's the evidence for that and what's going to serve most kids? There is no one size fits all. Right. But there is some fundamental understanding like Shaw's stages of reading development. There are some fundamental what goes on under the hood to build that brain, that brain circuitry. There are some fundamental understandings that that we need to share, that we need to have as a community. You know, otherwise we'll continue arguing like doctors could be still be arguing about whether leeching and balance of humors and and bleeding you know is is an acceptable option i mean we we've got to think about who 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 what's at stake here you know the kids literacy the the country's future i don't know i don't want to get too grandiose here but it's got to be that that's got to drive what we yeah. do in finding some kind of common ground I think I think you're I think you're totally right, and I think it is the one thing we all agree on, right? Was we want the kids to be able to read. Okay, um, all right, we are so low on time, and you and I could talk. We said this at the very beginning before we started recording. We could talk about this all day long, um, and so I'm going to get to our five rapid fire questions, um, and we'll, and again, they're rapid fire, but do your best. Uh, the first question is: so the podcast is called More Than a Test, but every guest has thought it more than a test meant something different. So, what does more than a test mean to you? Well, what I thought was more than the test uh, has to do with with um, teaching and assessing reading. Uh, it, it, it's more than just a test. I mean, testing sometimes has a bad name for various reasons. We over-test, we under-test, we test the wrong things, we draw the wrong conclusions. But whatever you call it, it's more than the test, teaching and assessing how, how our kids are doing. That, that's my interpretation. That's lovely. Um, okay, one like literary moment in your life that has defined or impacted you. So this is, it doesn't have to be anything academic, but a moment of you in a book that has really been a part of your life. Well, I told you about Gene Shaw's stages yes. of reading development, right? Mm -hmm. So that, that's in the professional. In the personal, this I know it's going to sound like a cliche, but uh, I, I was recently asked this also. Um, to Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird is something that sort of is in its own category. It, it it it's got everything. It's got courage. It's got shameless behavior. It's got empathy. 
It's got forgiveness. It's got uh, courage and 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 people doing the best they can under difficult circumstances and people doing terrible things. But someone being able to say, well, you know, look at the world from their eyeballs and walk around in their shoes. Uh, it, it, it's got everything that you would want people of humane and decent emotions and intentions to think about. Plus, it's just so gorgeously written in a very plain, accessible, non, how should I say, inflated or grandiose Yes. Term. Have you seen the Aaron Sorkin uh, play? Have you seen the play I didn't, adaptation? I have not. Have you? I have. I saw it this year and it is really good. It is so, as someone who is a little bit worried because I love To Kill a Mockingbird the way that you do, the play, the play is fantastic. So did you that. see it in New York? Did you see it in New no, York? No, they came to Denver. I got lucky. I saw it out here. Um, yeah. So, but I also didn't get to see like I can't remember who the actor is, but there was an actor who's like the big deal who got he wasn't the one who came here. But Jeff Daniels, Jeff yes, Daniels was, is the one who did it in Broadway. Yeah. Yes, I didn't get to see him. So if you can go to New York, go see Jeff Daniels. That would be amazing. But he's not in it anymore. He's he's passed the torch. Yeah. Well, tell we'll tell him about your retirement. And he'll be back on stage. <laughs> <laughs> That's a deal. Laura. Um, That's a great idea. <laughs> Awesome. A piece of technology that you love. Piece of technology that I love? Yes. Oh, um, you know, it's hard to say I love uh, technology. Um, I I use my phone a lot. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons I like my phone a lot is when I, you know, when I read, like just the other day, I was reading an article in the New York Times Book Review, a new book on Mozart. And uh, I I read far more reviews than books. I mean, I've I've got to admit, I read lots of reviews, not that many books. So I was reading this review about Mozart, and the author of the review was a chief Times music critic, and he made a comment about Mozart's um, piano sonata in A minor as reflecting a particular period in the in the composer's life. So I got out my iPhone. Right clicked on that music thing, you know, I right. uh, uh, Apple Music, and I listened to the sonata so I could hear what he was talking about. I mean, That's that is a, a gift to be able to, to do that. I mean, I have like my own traveling multimedia empire just in this little box. I have a feeling that we're going to see this on like an Apple ad at some point. If this story gets out, that was really lovely. Like I picture like rain and everything. So that sounds really lovely. Okay. Um, but don't sell it. Don't, don't give it to them. Don't give it to them. <laughs> yeah, unless, yeah. unless you can get some kickback for Amira, you know, to, you yeah, know, right. for, uh, you, push ahead you what me you're and Amira will we'll do great. All right. Um, the best, <laughs> the best advice you've ever been given. Oh, this advice I've been given. Well, this is going to sound so weird. I've, I've actually never been asked this question, but I think the best advice is um, was given to me, not personally, but I think Polonius in uh, Hamlet said, to thine own yeah. self be true. Oh, that's really lovely. Thank you for that. And the last question is one book, and we already mentioned one, but you've said we could have more than one. So as many books as you think everyone should read, or at least a few. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm going to tell you two books that I think people should read but even if you just read or know the title, it'll enrich your professional life. The first okay. one I mentioned, Mark Seidenberg's Reading at the Reading Speed of Light. No, sorry, language. Language at the Speed of Light. At the Speed of Light, okay. Language at the Speed of Light. Uh-huh. 
And then the companion to that is Louisa Motz's speech to print, because it reminds us that speech came first. Speech is part of human evolution. 300,000 years ago, whether it was grunts or words or whatever, human speech is part of human evolution. And speech, human speech, is intuitively known to be something you understand. It's the thing that newborns orient to most. First came speech, then came print, about 295,000 years later. Print has been around only for 5,000 years. First was cuneiform, logographic, and alphabetic languages, orthographies were even later. But speech to print is what happened in human evolution, and that's how you have to think about making literacy, reading, into language. you got to go from speech to print, and then that language in print has got to be taken in at the speed of sight. Yeah. I, I love it. And I think I know what I'm going to be doing this week. Uh, Louisa Mo's book, I know, but the other one I haven't read. So I'll be reading that. Thank you so much for your time. This was really lovely, like it always is. Um, and thanks for taking some some tough questions. Um, it's been really fun talking to you. You're welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. Anytime. Anytime. Ah, My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the More Than a Test podcast. If you found this conversation valuable, subscribe to our YouTube channel and find us on your favorite podcast platform. At Amira Learning, we believe every child deserves a chance to become a reader, and we're excited to be part of this conversation. See you next week, and thanks for joining.